Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, we do thank you that you hear our prayers, that you answer our prayers, and that's only made possible by the blood covering of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't take that privilege for granted, that privilege of knowing that we can come before your throne with boldness, that we can petition you on a continual basis and know that you hear us and that you answer us. I pray, Lord, as we open up your truth this morning, that you'd continue to speak to us as we study the book of Romans. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin our study of Romans chapter 9, I made a statement that this chapter, as well as the two subsequent chapters, answer the question of predestination. In other words, God's right and privilege to choose his children. And as we work through 9, 10, and 11, Paul uses the Jews' rejection of Christ to prove and illustrate God's right to predestination. However, Paul doesn't start chapter 9 with a cold, heartless response as he begins the chapter. And as I pointed out last week, he begins the chapter with a compassion. A compassion that identifies the Jewish people as his own, as he calls them brethren in Romans 9, 3. And in fact, he says in verse 1 that he has continual grief in his heart for his brethren in verse 1. And in verse 3, he makes this statement that he would rather he himself be accursed if the rest of his countrymen could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we're going to progress in chapter 9 today and go to verses 4 and 5. But I want to read verses 1 through 5 to put all of the verses in context. So if you're following along with me in your Bible, Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom 
according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. And as we look at those verses this morning, I'd like to pose a question. Where does Paul's grief come from? Why is it so deep? I believe that the sorrow is so deep and the grief without ceasing because Paul knew that the Jews had a revelation from God that the rest of the world did not have. God had revealed himself to the Jews in a special way. And as a people of God, they ended up rejecting God. Later on in my sermon, I'm going to bring up in more detail a similarity that I think we find ourselves in today. As Paul wrote Romans 9, people like to refer to America as a quote-unquote Christian nation, right? We're a Christian nation. We've long since stopped being a Christian nation. And we see that despite our heritage, despite our tradition, despite churches being on every corner, despite Christian broadcasts being played on radios and internet 24 hours a day, we see people turning away from God, and what's so disturbing is, is not only do we see that in the outside, but we see that with children and young adults who grew up in the Christian tradition. They have a history, and either they're not committed to the faith, Or some are going to such extreme that they're actually vocalizing the fact that they've turned against the faith. And I think that as we look at the detail that we find ourselves in in Romans 9, we can see that comparison more deeply. And I'll touch on that again at the end of my sermon. But let's start out by asking this question, What made the Israelites so different from the rest of the world? Why were they different? And Paul answers that question in our focal passage this morning in verses 4 through 5 by showing us that the Israelites had six privileges that the rest of the world did not have. Let's look at our focal passage again, 4 and 5 of Romans 9. Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Some of these verses that you can just read through rapidly, and if you don't spend some time, you miss what Paul is pointing out here. So let's dive in and let's look at the six privileges that the Israelites had. And the first one that he mentions in verse 4 is adoption. 
adoption. Now, there's, there's a great debate on what does Paul mean when he says adoption. And keep in mind, as we're going through these, we are talking about the whole nation of Israel. And in that nation were there people in the nation that came to a saving knowledge of Christ before he came in his first advent? And that answer is yes. We just can go to Hebrews and go through the Hall of Faith chapter and we can see that there are believers in the Old Testament. However, as we think about the nation in its entirety, and you have to keep this in mind as we go through these, Paul is talking about the whole nation who the vast majority end up rejecting Jesus Christ. And so if you keep that in mind, as we look at the six privileges, the first one is adoption. So therefore, he's not meaning salvation, because in the context of this scripture, he's telling us that the Jews reject. And in fact, if you think about just a chapter earlier in 8.15, he refers to salvation as adoption. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So it's not salvation. I believe that the adoption that Paul is referencing here in Romans 9 is God choosing the nation of Israel and setting them apart to exhibit his power. And in fact, if you look at Exodus 4, 21, when Moses meets God at the burning bush, Exodus 4.21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So one of the privileges that the Israelites had is is that they were adopted as a nation. God chose Israel as a nation to reveal himself to the rest of the world. This flows well into the second privilege. Look back again at our focal passage in Romans 9. To whom pertain the adoption in verse 4. And then the second privilege is the glory is the glory. Now think about this again in the context of the Israelites rejecting God. What does he mean by the glory? Well, let me give you several examples. In Exodus 16, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. In Exodus 24, as the Lord was giving The law on Mount Sinai, the glory of the Lord appeared. In Exodus 40, at the tabernacle of the meeting, 
the glory of the Lord was shown to the nation of Israel. No other nation had seen this. This was a privilege. This was something. This was beyond the norm for the world. They saw they were adopted. They saw the glory. What's the third privilege? The covenants. The covenants. Back in Exodus three fourteen, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. There's a covenant promise with the nation of Israel. In other words, there is a heritage. And as God is giving Moses his charge, he said, go and tell the nation of Israel, I am the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. There's strength in that, isn't there? It's the promises of God. As we think about the covenant promises, it is the promises of God. And the nation of Israel was adopted. They were set apart. They witnessed the glory of God on multiple, multiple occasions. And then, in addition to that, they had a spiritual heritage and promise through the covenant promises that God had given Abraham and reaffirmed with Isaac and Jacob. It's marvelous. The fourth privilege is the giving of the law. And here again is one of those phrases that you can kind of go through rapidly, but when you slow down and you study the Word of God you see that Paul is saying something different. I can hold my Bible up right now, right? And I'm, I'm holding, I'm holding God's Word. I'm holding the Ten Commandments, right? I'm holding it in my hand. You have a Bible, you have God's Word. That's not what he's saying here in the fullness of it. He says, the giving of the law. The giving of the law. Well, think about that. This is my exposure to the Ten Commandments. It's here in the book. This is far different than me holding this book and holding the Ten Commandments in my hand. It's quite another when I witness, if I was a Hebrew... And I'm witnessing the giving of the law 
is far better with far more power. Why do I say that? Exodus 31 verse 18 says, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, this is referring to God and Moses, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. This isn't, this is the Ten Commandments. Moses had the tablets written by the finger of God himself. Now let's think about the environment in which that was written, which the Hebrews were surrounding Mount Sinai and they looked up and they saw the cloud. They saw the lightning. They heard the thunder. They witnessed the giving of the law. That's a privilege, isn't it? I've often said that when I get to heaven, I hope that God has all of these things on a DVD where I can sit down and I can watch this because this is something I'd love to see. I'd love to see the crossing of the Red Sea. I'd love to see all of those things. The Hebrews participated in the giving, they witnessed the giving of the law. And then we get to the fifth privilege, the service of God, the service of God. What does that mean? There's several verses in the Bible that use this phrase, the service of God. I chose Hebrews 9 because I think it goes through in detail what this means. So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 9. We'll start in verse 1. It says, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which was called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, Wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing, what's the next phrase? The service of God. The service of God. What does that mean? It means that if you were a Hebrew and you were in Jerusalem at the temple, and prior to that, if you were a Hebrew when the Ark of the Covenant and all of these things mentioned were in the tabernacle of meeting, you witnessed the priest going in and performing their service of God on a daily basis. And then you also witness the service of God on the day of atonement and all of the things that are centered around the priest in the Jewish festivals. You saw that. You witnessed it. The rest of the world didn't witness that. They didn't know. It was... The Hebrews, they're the ones that saw that. And then we get to the last privilege, number six, 
the promises through the patriarchs to Messiah. Look at the end of verse 4 in the, in the rest of verse 5, and you'll see what I'm referring to as Paul outlines the sixth privilege. And the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Amen. In other words, as we pick up our Bible and as we look at the Old Testament, they had the prophets. They had the prophecies. They had the covenant promises that pointed to Christ. They had the tabernacle in later the temple in all of the things that were held into the Holy of Holies that pointed to Jesus Christ. Everything points to Christ. All of the Old Testament points to Christ. They had all of that. And if you think about Romans 1, when Paul opens up the letter in verse 1, he said, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So I just read that in Romans 1. And then when you think about what I just read in Romans 9, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. They had the ability to pick up the word and read the prophecies of God and the covenant promises that were given to them beforehand. But yet they rejected They had all of those things, but yet they rejected. And as we progress through Romans 9, we'll point out in specific verses the answer that Paul gives for what some see as a dilemma. How can one be exposed to all of the greatness, all of the revelation of God, and yet they reject? And quite frankly... I think in our own small way, that's where we find ourselves in America today. We find ourselves almost like the Pharisees that said, I'm of Abraham. Like somehow that just gave them a ticket. They really didn't believe God. They were just resting in their ethnicity, in their history. And I think, unfortunately, as we see the graying of the church, and as we see generation upon generation of younger people fall away and not participate, there are people in those younger generations that are making the same mistake. Well, of course I'm a believer. Of course I'm a believer. I experienced it when we first started the church here, nearly 25 years ago. I remember we'd go out and we would knock on doors and somebody would answer the door and we would introduce ourselves and tell people that we were starting a new church here. 
And I got this answer all the time. Well, this church here in town, you know, my family has gone to since Methuselah. Well, that's great. That doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't do anything for you. And we, unfortunately, we have a lot of young people today that say, well, grandma and grandpa were great believers. Mom and dad believed. Therefore, I am going to rest on the faith of grandma and grandpa, or worse, maybe even great or great, great grandpa, and say that that is going to give you standing in the kingdom of heaven. In addition, unfortunately, we have a young generation that is claiming that they have standing before God because they went through some religious act. And before I offend someone, I want to say that we are all in the same boat, whether you are from a liturgical background or whether you are from an evangelical background. And what do I mean by that? There are just as many Baptist or other evangelical denominations that say, well, you know, 30 years ago, I walked down the aisle and I got baptized and there's nothing in their life that reflects the power of God. But they say, this is my standing. This act that I did in the church, this is my standing. This is what gives me standing before a holy and righteous God. Just as in a liturgical background, we have a whole host of young people that say, well, I'm okay, I'm okay, because I went through confirmation, and this is okay. That was 20 years ago, that was 30 years ago, it's okay. I went through that. This is what's going to give me standing in front of a holy, righteous God. Whether you're evangelical, you have an evangelical background, whether you have a liturgical background, we have a whole host of people that should be in our churches this morning worshiping God, but they think they're okay because just like the Israelites, they are holding on. Just as the Israelites held on to the law, just like the Israelites held on to the tabernacle, they held on to the temple, they're saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. In which I would refer them to the words of Christ, who said, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me because I never knew you. See, that's what salvation's about. It's about knowing God, not knowing about God, knowing him. Knowing him, not coming in and saying, well, I did this particular act or ceremony in a church and I've been living like a dog ever since, but it's okay because I can hang my hat on this. That's not the case. And it's just the same case with the Hebrews who ended up rejecting Christ. Oh, they were all into the ceremony, right? Right. 
If you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all into the ceremony. They loved that. But they didn't know Christ. They didn't know Christ. Now, as we sit there and as I kind of draw a modern day analogy for you on this place that we find ourselves in, you could say, well, how do we fix that? How do we fix that? Because I'm telling you right now, it is a real problem. It is a real problem. It's a real problem in this church. As we look among ourselves and we are primarily an older congregation with very few exceptions. My wife's church that she grew up in, the church that we were married in 35 years ago, just ended up having to merge with another church because they could not afford to keep the doors open. That's happening all across the country. Churches are merging. Churches are closing. But yet I can drive down the road as I go to get donuts this Sunday morning and there are loads of young people out running, playing at the park, doing all of these things, and I would venture to say, if you pulled over on the road and you said, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, grandma and grandpa go to a church, or I was, I was baptized, or I did this, or I did that, so there I'm okay. If you're not in church, and as I've said before, I will never make an apology about defending the church. If you're not in church, who's God? Who's God? If you're not serving, if you're not worshiping, if you don't have a passion about your church and your fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, who is God? That person that's inactive is declaring that they're God. They're defining the rules. They're saying, I have standing because I did this. We're just like the Hebrews. So how do we... Fix it. We don't. Because just as Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from where and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. My friends, we need to petition God for an outpouring of His Spirit. We need to petition God that He would equip us to stand boldly into society and boldly among our friends and our family members and ask that difficult question, Do you know God? Do you know God? Because knowing about God is far different than knowing God Himself. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, I pray for our country. I pray for the state of churches. I pray, Lord, for the younger generations, that they would come and they would cling to your truth and we'd have a revival to where the churches are full. We know, Lord, that you are the Lord of the harvest. 
We know that it's not us. We know that it's not our power. It's not our logic. It's not our intellect. And I pray that we would address that and we would cling to you, knowing that you're all-powerful, knowing that you save. And I pray, Lord, that we would be convicted, just as Paul was, to be in a state of grief for people that do not know you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, milkcreekchurch.org.